I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. The riches are in the niches and people overlook the niches and they try to be everything to everyone or try to do things that are too broad. But the deeper you can go into a niche, you will become unique, you will become differentiated and you will realize that the world and America are so big that there are more people within the niches than you could ever imagine. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders and innovators served up on the house. Do you run your restaurant or does your restaurant run your life? As entrepreneurs, we build these businesses with a singular goal in mind, freedom. But how many of us are really free? Today we chat with Elliot Bisnow, co-founder of Summit and author of Make No Small Plans, a book about building a great business and a great life. In today's conversation, Elliot breaks down the key decisions that led to his success so that we too can enjoy the freedom we deserve. We are a community company and everything we do is around building community. And to get even more specific, the way that Summit started and the core of Summit, what it was and is, is an events company. Like Summit really started as a company that put on events, just like your favorite festivals you would go to, or if you have a job, you've probably gone to a business conference, whether it was a big one or a small one, you've maybe gone to a trade show. So somewhere in the hodgepodge and mishmash of festivals and business conferences and events live Summit. And Summit, the events are a three-day multidisciplinary music, content, and arts festival. So Summit started with just 20 people. The first ever Summit, I was cold calling people, begging people to come. And what it evolved to is just this epic kind of extravaganza where we get entrepreneurs together, creatives, artists, nonprofit founders, and we bring them together for this kind of business festival hybrid. And at the core of everything is the entrepreneurial spirit in each of us. Like if you think of different events, a great event has a common theme or even a great trade show or a great business event. You don't just get like every person. No, it's a certain type of music. That's why you go to country festival. You know, it's a certain trade show because it's your craft or it's the, you know, for a certain food expo, a certain type of food, right? Summit at its core is the entrepreneurial spirit in all of us for the builders and the creators. And whether you're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur inside of a company or building your own company, we put on events for entrepreneurially minded people. And since then have expanded into other endeavors 
Like we own a ski resort called Powder Mountain. We have something called Summit Junto, which is our version of the business forum. And now we have a book about our story called Make No Small Plans. You're right. I would describe it as like Coachella for the entrepreneurial minded. But at the same time, it's so much more than that. And so how did you put it all together in your mind? I read the book and you can tell that there's clarity of thought and linear thinking, but the growth was exponential. And then you think about restaurateurs and the way that we grow brands. And it all starts with a simple execution of a really big idea. And so for you, can you talk to me about the power of big thinking and how it's applied to your life personally and professionally? Well, at the very beginning, when I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I'd taken the first few steps to being an entrepreneur, I quickly realized that not only did I not know anything, but I also didn't know anybody. I had no peer group. It's probably similar to anyone who wants to start their first restaurant. They have a vision that they've arrived at. They have a specific type of cuisine, a specific city or neighborhood they want to put the restaurant in. They have a specific design that they can see in their mind. They can see what they want to create, how there's a gap in the market. Wow, if this restaurant went here, it would be perfect. And then between that vision and reality of putting it together is a very wide, daunting gray space as the writer Stephen Pressfield calls resistance. And within resistance is like all the things that you don't know. Oh my gosh, like I don't know how to lease a space. I don't actually know how to design a restaurant. I know what it should look like, but I don't know how to purchase all this furniture. I don't know how to build these tables. I don't know how to hire chefs and line cooks. I don't know how to do any of these things. So that is like essence this space of having no idea what to do and figuring it out, that is the essence of our story. That's the essence of our book, Make No Small Plans. It's having this vision for me was, I don't know anybody. I have a business. I'm completely clueless. I have to try to meet people. And what I tried to do was I started cold calling people that I had read about in not well-known people, but in Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur Magazine. Maybe these people had a half page about them. And at the beginning, you know, as the founder of Tom's Shoes, he'd just given his first 10,000 pairs away, or the founders of Vimeo and College Humor, I've seen some stuff online about them. So I started cold calling people and I said, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't know anything. I don't know anyone. I want to get other young people together. Let's build a community and a peer group of entrepreneurial company founders. And the first summit ever was almost 15 years ago, and it was 20 people that I brought together for a ski trip. And that was the origin of this event slash community that we spent almost 15 years building. Let's talk about that. There are two chapters that I think directly relate to each other. One is authenticity trumps perfection. And then the other one is called reputations are earned by the drop and lost by the bucket. One details that first summit event where a earnest effort made a bad trip great. And then the latter chapter discusses how in doing something which on its face seemed really logical, it didn't meet the expectations of your membership base. And it created this friction within the community itself directed at you guys. And what we're really talking about, I think, in both cases 
is setting and meeting expectations, which in being an events-based company, in owning your own ski resort, I think there's a lot to be said for meeting expectations. The same is true in the restaurant industry. You're dealing with high net worth individuals and you're dealing with really prominent celebrities and speakers. And I'm curious to know, especially in the early days without a budget, how have you gotten better at managing expectations over the years? And in order to meet them, I suppose you have to set them really clearly, right? This is definitely something that we spent a lot of time learning and made a lot of mistakes learning. I mean, you want to under-promise and over-deliver, but you don't want to under-promise so much that nobody wants to come, right? You want to set the bar high for the new menu at your restaurant or the restaurant experience or the quality of the food. But if it's too high, then at most you can meet their expectations and they're kind of already expecting it. If it's too low, that's a big problem because you've missed their expectations. And I think that's something in the early days we would over pitch. And there's a really fine line. Like you want to sell a new Tesla car. I mean, it's a great product, but if you pitch that the battery's unlimited, that's a big problem, even if it's got a great battery range. Or you pitch that the driverless feature does everything and actually it only does some stuff, even though the some <laughs> stuff is really cool. And so I think life is about finding a balance where you can pitch your product, you can build excitement, but you can't go too far. And that is a big deal. Like one simple example would be our events are all inclusive and we have different room types and not over promising what a room type is. Your room's going to be amazing. This is going to be, you know, just this is what it is. It's a beautiful room. It's got this and this, but it's not so big. If this is the size or we have even more affordable options where people can share rooms. We've really focused now for probably a decade just on being as transparent as possible with what our offering is and what Summit is and what it's not. And just going back to your quote of authenticity trumps perfection, in my early days, when I did drop out of college, I was very nervous about being authentic because my authentic self was a 21-year-old college dropout with zero success. By definition, anyone who's on their first business and dropped out of college you have no degree, you have no success, you have no sales, like you really don't have anything. And I was very nervous and scared to share that with people because who would want to hang out with an unsuccessful college dropout with literally had never closed a sale or a deal or anything. So I put on a suit and tie every day. And when people asked me when I graduated college, I would tell them, I would say, yeah, I finished in 2006. I dropped out in 2006. You know, I wouldn't be authentic. I would try to dress up like I was impressing people. And I had a meeting one day with this older person I wanted to sell some ads to. And I wore my suit and tie and my blazer. And we sat down at this table at this fancy restaurant that I'd arranged. And as soon as we sat down, I think he could see right through me. And he said, take off your blazer. Take off your tie. Unbutton the top two buttons. Okay. Roll up your sleeves. Okay. He said, to the waiter, can we have an order of cheesy fries and we'll each have a beer? I said, we're at a business meeting. Is it appropriate? He said, just relax. Just tell me your story. Tell me who you are. And I started telling my story. He said, no, the real story. Like, tell me about school. When did you graduate? I said, well, he said, oh, you, did, you, dro you dropped out? I said, well, he said, just say it. Just tell me. You're an entrepreneur. I dropped out of school. He's like, that's what I am. I want to know the truth. And I left this meeting 
my sleeves rolled up, my buttons unbuttoned. I'm an entrepreneur. I dropped out of college like Steve Jobs. And suddenly when I met people and they'd ask me my story, I started being real. I said, look, I'm a college dropout. I just started my business. I am building my dreams. It's not successful yet, but I'm in the journey. And what happened, it turned out that almost everyone thought, this is really inspiring. And some subset of people thought, wow, I can see myself in this kid. And that was from the very beginning, like authenticity trumps perfection. Don't try to show them who you want to be. Just show them who you are and people will really relate to you. Well, I think it became a pervasive element of your company's culture. With my restaurant, we worked as almost the centerpiece of the downtown Los Angeles event that you threw. I mean, you took over city blocks. And I mean, for the restaurant owners and operators listening, a thousand things go wrong in a restaurant every single day. It's a very, very human enterprise. So if you can envision taking over, what was it, one and a half square miles in diameter in a city, building out all of these different things, things went wrong. I mean, things go wrong constantly in human enterprises. But I watched the way your leadership team handled those issues. And it wasn't about explaining it away. And it wasn't about minimizing it. It was saying, this is the situation. This is what happened. This is what we're going to do to resolve it. Does that work for you? And 99% of the time it did. And it shows that from the highest levels of leadership, you guys were leading with authenticity and empowering other people to do the same. How do you convince people that are in a perpetual state of disorder to speak in such a way? I think we have a general belief that most of the people you run into are perceptive, thoughtful, smart, and aware. Like your customers at your restaurant, the clients or customers who come to our event, the Summit community. These are smart, thoughtful, aware people, and they can see through and smell through BS. I think we just hold our community and we hold most people in really high regard, regardless of who they are, difference of opinion. And so we just try to tell people how things are and what's happening. And I think people really respect that. There's a chapter in the book that says leaders don't have followers. Leaders create other leaders. And it's a beautiful thesis that kind of speaks to what we're talking about. But what does it look like in practical application? How do you create leaders within your organization? I think a good example of the wrong thing to do that people have experienced is, you know, there's that quote, if you hire an A player, you get more A players and they even hire people better than themselves. But if you hire a B player, they hire all these C players. And I think all cultures start from the top down and from leadership. And I think that if you have B players or people who the team doesn't come first, meaning their employees or the people who work with them or for them, if those people don't come first and the culture doesn't come first, right? The, they're in their job to collect their check. They're in their job to get their own accolades. Then they don't put in the care and the time to properly manage the folks on the team. Like I listened to an interview recently of an NFL quarterback, and there were these, like the backup quarterback, number two and three, and they asked the starting quarterback, like, what do you see your role as with the backup quarterback? And they said, that's not my job. Like my job's to go and win games in my role. And like, I don't spend time with the backup quarterback. It's not my job. 
this is like a very pathetic viewpoint to have, right? Like your job isn't just to perform in your role, it's to help as many people around you. And I, I would think like with that professional quarterback, that's why they're going to have a short six or eight year career and then figure out what to do with the next 40 years of their lives. That's like a really problematic attitude, right? And like what leaders do is they understand like that there's an entire company and an ecosystem and your job is not just to perform, it's to further the culture, the mentorship of the people around you. Like if you think your job in accounting is just to account and run finances, if you think your job in marketing is just to run great campaigns or in sales, look, all I do is I put up big sales numbers and that's it. That's not your job, right? Like at a good company, your job as a leader of the department, or by the way, an up and coming person with leadership qualities, your job is to take care of, nurture, and mentor all the people around you and who you work with. Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up in some pretty unlikely places, like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy Duty Degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish soap. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser from PNG Professional. You mentioned mentorship. How has mentorship played a role in your life, both as a teacher and as a student? Well, I feel very lucky that from a young age, just kind of random people that I would run into would take me under their wing. And I think looking back, it's because when they would make just one small gesture, I would gobble it up, right? They would say, oh, here's a book, by the way, you should read. I would read it in two days and call them back or write them back. I say, I finished the book. Here's what I learned. What can I do next? And so I think I became a very good mentee. And that is very much continued on. I would always have this, it was like a joke, but it was serious that I was always going around making mentors for myself, right? Like we kind of think that mentors find us, but I was always going around literally finding people and then just saying, you know, Josh, I'm so impressed with what you've done. I would love if you'd be open to mentoring me, even if you just have a couple of book recommendations, just anything. I could just ask you a couple of questions. And then people like to mentor people who are great mentees. We've all had someone we've given some advice and they ignored it, or we gave advice and they took it for a week and moved on, or you recommended a book and they didn't even buy it. I'm basically the greatest mentee ever. Like if I was going to say like something I'm very good at, it's being a mentee. Like when people, when people give me assignments to learn, or are talking at me, I'm just devouring their information. And then I think as I've gotten older, but not even that much older, like I've really enjoyed paying it forward. And even from a young age, I think people think you have to hit a certain successful point to take on mentees or to be a mentor. But that's kind of like thinking you can't retire till you're 60. 
doesn't make any sense. Like everyone has something to teach and everyone has something to learn. And so I think from a young age, almost as soon as I was learning anything, I would go to my friends and I'd be like, hey, I just learned this. Like, I got to share it with you. Or here's this book someone so-and-so told me to read. So I've really enjoyed having people that I mentor and I've really enjoyed getting mentored. I want to talk about the dynamics of your partnership. So there are four co-founders of Summit and Powder Mountain and all of this. That's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. How did you guys set ground rules to make sure that not only would you have a successful business, but you'd have a successful partnership? So there have been a lot of challenges of having multiple co-founders, but ultimately there have been infinitely more positives, infinitely more. And the challenges have all been fairly minor. And the challenges are more like problematunities, you know, problem opportunities, right? Or they've been more like, takes a little more effort to have more co-founders. Or you have to put more effort into communicate. Like I need to, we have to make a big decision and it's harder to schedule. Or I, you know, I can, can't reach one person and I have to reach someone else and explain things multiple times. Or you own less of your business because you divide up the ownership between the various founders. But the pluses have been amazing, right? Like we each have such different skill sets that we bring to the table, such different ideas, different backgrounds and different points of view. And ultimately, the most fun part of building a business is the building of it, right? It's like if you sell your business, then the business is just over when you sell it. And I guess theoretically, you have money, but then the whole point of doing the business would be to make the money. But like that shouldn't be the point of anything. Like The point of doing anything is not to like build a successful restaurant and then sell the restaurant. The point of doing anything is that the anything is the thing, is the fun thing. So like that's been our goal. And that's why we've been working together on Summit for almost 15 years is because this is the fun thing. So doing something with other people that you love working with makes everything way more enjoyable. It helps you get through the hard times. I mean, business, restaurants, it's very hard. Lots of ups and downs. And to go through it alone is a grind and extremely difficult. So I've absolutely loved having co-founders. Is the secret sauce there alignment? That you've been aligned in vision, that you've been aligned in values? I mean, I can't envision a world where you guys have been able to maintain same values in the same alignment for 15 years. Have there been rough patches? Have there been deviations? Has the vision evolved and it's been hard to get everyone else on board? And if so, what do you do to recenter the group? I think the vision and the values at a high level are there. And then part of what can make a group work really well is that there's very different approaches to getting there. Like some people are way more aggressive in terms of their risk-taking, and some are much more calculating and risk-averse. And I think that's very healthy. We say that the more diverse the inputs, the better the outputs. And I think over the years, we've actually added more partners because we've had more projects. And I think there's definitely been, whether it's people we've worked with or partners, where it feels like whether the values are not aligned anymore or there's just a difference in what they want to be doing. 
that definitely happens and that's totally fine, right? And that's what makes a company fun is then you can issue more equity and bring in new partners. But I think in general, I've been a big fan of having partners, not just employees. And again, I always think of the employees as the team, but I think there is a difference with someone that you really feel is a true partner and they can tell you how it is and the buck doesn't just stop with me, right? These are like real partners. And you know, we have the governance in place where really does take a majority of the partners to make the big decisions. And that's worked really, really well. I've really enjoyed it overall. There's a part in the book where you discuss living the brand, which is a really interesting concept to me. Sure, it seems intuitive on its face, but most of us are selling a brand, but not living that brand simultaneously, right? Like I ran Southern inspired restaurants in every tier of dining, and it was all about this elevated laissez-faire lifestyle. And, and it had nothing to do with the way I actually lived my life. But had I lived the brand that I was promoting, I would have been a much happier, more fulfilled person in that moment in my life. What did living the brand mean for you and the team at Summit? And how has that evolved over the years? I think that in most businesses, the original founders will often get away from the reason that they started it, right? Like starting a business is the surest way to destroy your love for something, right? Like you love music and love producing music. So you open a record studio and then it just ruins your life. You know, the recording studio, because all you're doing is recording music, you know, or you love food and love restaurants. You open a restaurant and you're just losing your mind because it never occurred to you all the problems and challenges and angry customers who before you just laughed at because you were a customer as well. And now you just, they're angry at you. And so I think that from the start of a business, like the purpose of a business, aside from serving the customers, is to build something that you really love. That is like at its core, like, why are you starting a business? Oh, well, I really want to serve a community and, you know, fill this need of these customers. And I also want to build something that I am personally can have so much fun doing. So I think from the core, that's really important. And I think people lose track of that. And I think what happens more specifically is we live in a society that brainwashes us that businesses should make as much profit as possible. And then you should take the profit and go have your fun life from that. You take the profit out of the business and you buy your nice house and your car and your vacations. And so you're doing something you love in a way you don't love. So you're losing your mind to make money to then try to do. It's very convoluted. And so I think just like at its core, everyone should step back and realize like, this is why I'm building this business. One of the purposes that I'm supposed to love it, I'm supposed to enjoy it. That's something that we have definitely taken very seriously, pretty much from the beginning is we don't want to be the people running around the summit events or the festivals with walkie talkies and radios, not sleeping losing our minds, can't interact with people. And in our book, which covers the first five years of Summit, that's certainly what happened for the first years and years straight was no sleep, building everything ourselves. But we started to realize like this is burning us out. And again, it was fun, and, but we tried to reset. So of course, you're going to work hard, but you're finding the space to enjoy the food at your own restaurant, to 
build it into your business that it's okay to, you know, give some customers refunds or you're not opening seven days a week, three meals a day. You're doing five days a week, two meals a day, you know, whatever the decisions are in a way that makes the business something that you can actually enjoy. Well, and it's bled into your personal life. In our last conversation, as soon as I was done chatting with you, I went and I turned to my wife and I was like, this guy plays tennis two hours a day. He reads books two hours a day and he committed a thousand hours last year to learning how to cook. You're doing it, whether it is by design or by intention or whether it is just your natural proclivity to live your life. You are living a life that everyone else is waiting to live, right? Until they exit their company or until they open that next business or that next restaurant or when this happens, that's when I'm really going to start living my life. And I just found it so inspiring on a personal level because everything that you're doing that I am so inspired by, it doesn't really cost money. It takes time and intention. Can you talk to me about the path? That, have you always been this dude? Or did you evolve to become someone leading an intentional life over time? Well, people kept asking us at the beginning of Summit, like, what's your exit strategy? Is this like, well, so what's your exit strategy? How are you going to exit? What are you going to build it to? How much revenue? How much profit? What's your exit strategy? Until we just realized a couple years in, like, maybe we shouldn't have an exit strategy. What's your exit strategy for your family? It's like a really weird question, right? It's like, if you're going to have an exit strategy, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. What's your exit strategy from anything you love? Oh, you're a teacher at a school for four years. What's your exit strategy? It's like really weird, right? You would think that's like really messed up. Like maybe they're just teaching because they love teaching kids. Right. So I think that question started to bug me. And I think that a lot of the things we do are like 180 degrees incorrect. Like a lot of our decisions, if we look at our life, are not just like a little off course, they're like 180 degrees. Like we should actually be doing literally the opposite for way more things than we think. And I think when we realized at Summit, like why would we want an exit strategy? Like this is the thing we love. With no exit strategy, then, oh, well, I'm not gonna just sell my restaurant in four years. I'm not gonna sell my event. Okay, well then I better make sure, be authentic to myself. Like this is something I wanna do for 30 years. Oh, okay. Well, if it is, and I'm going to settle in for the long haul, like here's how I'm going to do it differently. And we have a lot of hours available to us, even sleeping eight hours a night. You still have 16 more hours. And if you're extremely efficient, let's just say you work eight hours a day, you still have eight more hours and you sleep eight hours. It's just a lot of hours. And I kind of feel like if you're efficient, you can just have two days in every day, right? Even by the time most people are done working at four or five, you still have eight more hours, but you have another day. And so you can work eight hours. You can sit down and eat meal with your family. You can spend a few hours a day with your kid. You can play tennis for two hours. You can play the piano for half an hour. You can read a book for an hour at night. I mean, you can spend time with your spouse. There's just a lot of hours. And I think the main issue that people have is not the total hours, it's just the wasted time. Like, I don't have any social media on my phone and I don't really read the news. 
So I feel that I'm pretty much maximizing all the available hours. Are you a protectionist? When people try and take your time, which I'm sure happens, how do you offset that? You know, for restaurateurs, our phones ring off the hook, employees, partners, opportunities, issues. How do you protect your time? How do you isolate it into buckets so that you can live your life in an undistracted manner, just doing whatever it is that you're doing in this moment? Well, no, people definitely don't take my time because I'm just very thoughtful with the requests. I don't have an assistant, so everything just comes to me and I can figure out what I want to work on, what's enjoyable, what should be passed on or delegated to other people. I don't mind. And I, like I said, I have eight hours a day to work. I like doing work. Anything I don't enjoy, I would just not do because I'm kind of of the state of mind that there are ample opportunities. I feel like in a state of abundance, like it's okay to let things go because there are so many opportunities. And if you're doing something you really, really love, you'll find something that you'll be happier at. You can make more money. You know, and I'm just very thoughtful about the whole setup of everything. I really think thoughtfully about the decisions I make. And it was clearly not like this at the beginning. But if you have a restaurant, starting from how many days a week it's going to be open to the size of the restaurant to, I mean, there's just so many decisions to be made. And people, what I find, and, and we're guilty of this, but we can destroy our own schedules a year ahead of time by committing to events a year ahead of time that we can't pull off, right? Like we can definitely really mess up our lives. And so it takes a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of planning. But ultimately, look, the biggest thing is just not wasting time, no social media. You know, when I listen to podcasts, I'm driving somewhere, I'm going for a walk. I'm doing it really thoughtfully. And so I think just, you know, it's not easy, but you got to cut out all the time wasting things. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? The riches are in the niches and people overlook the niches and they try to be everything to everyone or try to do things that are too broad. But the deeper you can go into a niche, you will become unique, you will become differentiated, and you will realize that the world and America are so big that there are more people within the niches than you could ever imagine. The niches are actually not that niche. And within that spirit, some percentage of people that come to your restaurant, like 10%, should really think it's absolutely under no circumstances for them. They should be like, wow, this menu is, this whole setup is not for me. And then you'll know that you're doing something right. Someone told me once, like all the best-selling books in the entire world, like 10% of their reviews are one star. And niches mean you're authentic. You're focused in on really what you want to do. And you're really true to something. That's Elliot Biznow. Pick up your copy of Make No Small Plans wherever books are sold. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.